All right. Wayne, we'll start off with a question for you. Uh, we had a few people write in with this question, wondering how the doctrine of the depravity of man fits in with a, a rather optimistic view, it seems like, of business and uh, being productive and you know, all those things being good, the, the 11 things you listed, um, so many of those being good. Uh, so how does that fit with the depravity of man? Does the depravity of man cancel out the goodness? Does the fall now mean that those things aren't good? No, the, the amazing thing about how God set up the human race to work and the free market to work, which just is, it just, it's, it's like gravity, just where human beings are, they trade and they bargain with each other. Um, the amazing thing about it is um, when I seek to do good for others, I find that I am rewarded in it. Or if I seek to further my own good by making, by growing apples or making shirts or shoes or cars or whatever for other people, it benefits me when I do good for others. Um, and so uh, it's an amazing thing about the, about the market, the way it, uh, it takes people's inherent, I suppose, selfishness or desire for self-improvement and turns it into a means by which it motivates people to do good for others. Um, uh, yeah, I think that governments are needed to uh, prevent fraud and theft and, and, and to enforce contracts and things to prevent criminal activity. But otherwise, the market takes it, it. When people start cheating or selling shoddy products, the market disciplines them very quickly and they go out of business. I would add that I think depravity um, means not to act in your own best interest. It means to inappropriately, wrongly act in your own best interest as opposed to those of other people. And I think God built in to Adam and Eve in a perfected state. Uh, he is the creator of the uh, desire to do what is, in the right sense, best for us. So when you love your neighbor as yourself, the idea is you know that there is a natural instinct to take care of yourself, which can be abused, misappropriated, but some of that's just from God, and it's appropriate. So it's a, maybe an overly pessimistic view of the fall to, to think that those good things are completely obliterated. Is that fair to say? Correct. There is still goodness. By common grace, there's, there's not only a tendency to sin in everybody's heart, there's also a desire to do good in everybody's heart. And that conflicts, and that's why God holds us responsible. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. I think that doctrine of common grace, which Wayne develops well in his systematic theology, in fact, I quoted from it in um, my book, If God is Good, I think it's critical to understand that God restrains evil in this world. If total depravity meant that every person could only do evil all the time, this world would not exist. It'd be hell. Yeah. 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 All right, so what about using the, the Earth's resources as opposed to exploiting the Earth's resources? What's the Christian responsibility for conservation? Hot topic these we days. Th we should use the Earth's resources wisely. <clears throat> but the ideal is not an untouched Earth. It's a developed Earth. God wants us to develop the resources of the Earth. Now, now, British Petroleum apparently built an oil well, drilled an oil well in the Gulf of Mexico that didn't have a remote shutoff that they were supposed to put on it. 
I mean, that's at least the news report I read. So that when the thing explodes, they're supposed to push a button and it shuts it off at the source. But they didn't do that. Well, okay, so people can do stupid things. They can do criminally negligent things. And governments are supposed to enforce against doing that. But, um, but basically, uh, the picture of subduing the earth in Genesis and then the picture of the resources of the earth, the treasures of the earth coming into the heavenly city in Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22 is one of the earth's resources being developed for the good of mankind. The opposite of that is the, alt, is the radical environmentalist movement that says don't touch the earth mm -hmm. and tries to block all development. Wise use means using it in order that it still will be useful for future generations. So you don't poison lakes and kill all the fish, but you certainly can fish in the lake. Um, and if you say, well, how do I know if I'm using up too many resources? The market system prices those things. So that uh, price is a guide. It's an instant guide to whether things are scarce or abundant. Um, and when the price of oil goes up and up and up, then you switch to something else. So that means I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Julian Simon and his um, book, The Resourceful Earth and The Ultimate Resource. He's a University of Maryland economist, Julian Simon, who wrote books on the, the Earth's resources. And he said the ultimate resource of the Earth is human ingenuity because we can always invent substitutes. When we grow short of something, oil, oil, we, then we go to kerosene, we go short of kerosene, we go to electric lights and... And, and he said, therefore, we're never going to run out of any resource on Earth. And I think that's true. Because if something becomes uh, scarce, we take, we, the price goes up, people use less, and they, try, they use a substitute. So we're not going to run out of anything. Not going to run out of oil, not going to run out of coal, not going to run out of food. We're certainly not going to run out of trees. That's, anyway, we're not going to run out of trees. <laughs> Every so, year since 1922, there have been more trees in production in the United States than the previous year. Really? Yeah. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's, everything in it, which covers a lot of ground. It all belongs to him. He's the master, we're the steward. But he has entrusted the earth to our care and for our use. We're supposed to take dominion over it. We're supposed to take dominion over animals. It's not a negative thing, it's a positive thing yeah. to take leadership, to take care of. So when you have care for animals, that's the Bible. Uh, but animals are also given to us for food. We see that in Genesis 9 after the flood. So there's, is there a balance there? Sure, there's a balance <coughs> there, but I think uh, we, we can go to two extremes with it. You, you can have animal rights activism, and at the same time you can have people who say, well, those nutso you know, animal rights people, and then justify inhumane treatment of animals and crowding them into pens and doing things that are just cruel. Okay, so, well, you say you're going to kill them anyway, so why not be cruel to them along the way? Well, that's just, you know, the righteous man, Proverbs says, cares for the life of his beast, you know? And there, there is a, a natural thing that God has entrusted. Same thing with the environment. Reasonable care of the environment, absolutely. We as Christians, I think, Sometimes I do think there is a backlash among us as conservative Christians, and I'm a conservative Christian, when we see people, and trust me, I'm from Oregon, okay, so I know what radical environmentalism is. But there's a tendency then for people even in my church to just always, oh, all they care about is saving the earth, and then kind of there's a 
response to it like, well, the earth's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. It's all going to be destroyed, so we may as well just use it up and not worry about it. Well, that's obviously an extreme, but I say obviously, but it doesn't seem to be too obvious to some believers. There's, you know, sometimes what we do is we see a wrong overreaction in the world, and then we try to swing the pendulum back the other way and swing it too far instead yeah, of taking the biblical path. We want the earth to be useful for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Loving our neighbor as ourselves means loving the next generation too. Right. And God is a God of order, right? I mean, he's a, a yeah. God of good control in yep. a sense, yeah. and so I, I think that would reflect his character in, in our subduing of it, right? Yep. Okay. Now what about a Christian's responsibility, if any, to, um, well, to avoid businesses that are shady, that, that don't care about the environment, or use sweatshops, or also do this thing, sell this thing over there that is, that's wrong? Free to buy someplace else. If you don't want to buy in a certain place, I mean, I and there have been. I mean, uh, twenty years ago, I think it was the American Family Association said the largest seller of pornography in the United States is Kmart. Wow! Because I think Kmart had a subsidiary, Circle K, and they were selling a lot of pornography. So American Family Association said, "Let's boycott Kmart." And you know what happened? The stock price of Kmart from that time on declined, and it eventually went into bankruptcy. Because they confronted Kmart and said, will you stop selling so much pornography? And Kmart said, no, we won't. And so I don't think it was wrong for Christians to say, hey, I'm going to shop at some other store besides Kmart. But I don't think if Kmart's the local store where you know, it's convenient and there's a good price, I don't think there's anything wrong with buying from it in that case. I mean, and I'm, I'm not bad-mouthing Kmart here. And I still shop at Kmart. But I've just given you an example. It doesn't seem to me wrong for Christians to say, well, because this company is doing this, I'm not going to buy from it. Fine, we're free to do that. And uh, it's a free market, it's a free world. As individuals or institutionally? Well, talk to your friends if you want. <laughs> Another what about denominations that do Yeah, it? well, I suppose they're free to do that. Um, and I think it's a, it's a free country. If people want to do that on one side or another of an issue, that's fine. It's a way consumers make their voice known. It's a healthy thing in a democracy. Do you think it's a good testimony to the nation, to our worldly neighbors? <laughs> Depends on the case. Okay. I don't, I mean, that was 20 years in the past, yeah. and, um, and I don't know if Kmart has anything to do with pornography anymore, so I'm not saying it. I just, that's a historic example that I knew about, that's all. Another issue is uh, investing. Um, mutual funds, obviously, are the most common form of investment, so one of the questions people ask is, okay, so I'm in this, whatever it is, Vanguard, Fidelity, who, you know, I'm in this uh, mutual fund, and then I look through the list of companies they're investing in, and what about the times they're investing in, investing in pornography, gambling, yep. alcohol? You may or may not have an issue with that. I mean, I think we would all have an issue with the abuse of alcohol tobacco, you know, whatever it is. And, and I do think that there's a place where reasonable steps can be taken. And I recently endorsed a book. I'm not sure if it's out yet uh, or not, but it's by Dwight Short, and I don't remember the name, but it has to do with moral 
investing and just trying to be careful. Uh, and there are uh, groups uh, such as the Timothy Fund is, is, is one example where they are committed. They will not invest in any company that they know to be violating biblical principles. Now, does that mean that no, I mean, there could be cheating going on that they don't know about, whatever. But when a company's very uh, trademark is doing the thing that is dishonoring to God, should we seek to not uh, buy into that yeah, like mutual play, fund? Play, I would say company. yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, that's fine. I think that's good to yeah. be wise in that way. Okay. Uh, there's a book out by Greg Boyd, a uh, pastor in Minneapolis. There's several books by. Y- yeah, Boyd. you're right. Um, raise different problems. Yeah. The, the book du jour, the book we're uh, talking about here, is The Myth of a Christian Nation. Uh, Wayne, do you want to speak to that? Well, um, there are various chapters that make various points in that book, but the primary theme of Greg Boyd's book, Myth of a Christian Nation, it's had quite an influence, is that um, Christians should not support using power over others in order to bring about righteousness, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that should bring about changed hearts, and that's how we should influence a nation. And um, using force or military power or police force is power over, and that's not God's way. That's his argument. And he, um, he bases this on Luke uh, 4, where Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness comes and says to Jesus, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and says, uh, all their authority has been given to me, and I give it to whom I will. <clears throat> uh, bow down and worship me, and it will all be yours. And uh, Boyd <clears throat> says, therefore, Satan is the acting CEO of all worldly governments. And they're under the authority of Satan. Because he says it's all authority has been given to him, and Jesus didn't deny that. Well, my answer is that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus tells us in the book of John that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And so I don't think we should take anything that Satan says at face value. Jesus didn't specifically contradict that statement because he answered the temptation in another way. But the scripture itself says in Romans 13 that the civil government is God's servant for your good. And uh, Romans 13 specifically addresses that. It doesn't say Satan is the acting CEO of all worldly governments. So I think, so Greg Boyd says a Christian cannot work uh, as a soldier in combat uh, or a policeman to uh, stop violence. And uh, he says if uh, a criminal broke into his house and attacked his wife and children, he would not use force to defend his family. Well, I, I, uh, I differ with that. If a, if a criminal broke into my home and was attacking my wife or my children, I would use every bit of force at my disposal to stop the, uh, the harm. And I would use the force at my disposal not to bring the person to trust in Jesus Christ, but to stop the attack. <laughs> Um, so, um, so I think the book is based on a fundamental misconception. The misconception is to think that God only uses the gospel to restrain evil in this age. No, God uses the gospel to change people's hearts, but God also uses civil law and government and power, the power of civil government, to stop evil. Here are a couple of examples. How do we stop drunk driving on the streets of Albuquerque? One way is to share the gospel with people. Maybe potential drunk drivers. And if enough Christians are sharing the gospel, maybe a lot of drunk drivers will be saved. Well, maybe so. But there's another means that God uses to stop drunk drivers, and that is 
the civil magistrate, the civil law, the civil authority that brings severe penalties for drunk drivers. And that's why Romans 13 says that the civil government bears the sword. That's the authority to punish. And so how do we keep drunk drivers off the street? It's not just by sharing the gospel. It's also by having a law that says if you drive drunk, you'll get your license taken away, and if you do it again, you'll go to jail. And I'm glad for both means of restraining evil, the gospel and the government. Does that make sense? In the same way, when did slavery stop throughout the South? Not Not just when the gospel was preached throughout the South, but when... The government of the United States issued the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation and said the slaves are free. That was government stopping slavery. It wasn't the gospel stopping slavery, although the abolitionists were motivated by the gospel. Um, and so um, what stopped Hitler? Not the testimony of the gospel, because Hitler didn't accept Christ as Savior. It was the, the military power of Great Britain and the United States, the Allied forces, that stopped Hitler. And um, I think God gives both the gospel and government to stop evil. Boyd wants to take away one of those and say that Christians shouldn't serve. I think he's taking away a very essential part of uh, what God gives us on the earth to stop evil. And the, 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 the worrisome part about that is if Christians be persuaded that it's wrong to use superior force to stop evil, who's going to triumph? Evil's going to triumph. Who wants that to happen? I think the enemy wants that to happen doesn't want force to stop terrorism and stop military attacks and stop murderers. Um, so I think it's a, a very dangerous book. How would Greg Boyd understand a passage like Romans 13, which seems to assume the, the place and use of government? Um, <clears throat> I have forgotten. Okay. <laughs> and I wrote about it, and I'm not coming, it's not coming to mind now, but it's, it's like he gives a nod to, oh, yes, government has to do this, but Christians shouldn't be involved. Yes, government has to do this, but then he comes right back to uh, saying this is, this is the realm of Satan, and it's using power over, and it's not the gospel way. So he gives lip service to it, but doesn't, in the course of his book, really uh, acknowledge it fully. Um, I should, could I just say that I have a book coming out called Politics According to the yeah, Bible? It's coming out from Zondervan. You can pre-buy it on Amazon.com right now, um, if you want. And it's due out in August. So um, deals with Greg Boyd and deals with war and deals with other issues. Great. Okay. Another book that was asked about closer to home for us, I think, is uh, Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. So, Randy, maybe you could answer this. What is, uh, is, is Francis Chan articulating something that's close to what you're saying as far as radical, sacrificial living? I think so. I like Crazy Love. I like Francis Chan. haven't met him personally, but uh, I really appreciate his heart. Trying to remember, is it in the afterword of that book or the Holy Spirit book? What's that one called? The Forgotten God, where he uh, talks about the problem of child prostitution. Is that in Crazy Love at the end? Um, but uh, his heart, the fact that his heart was breaking for suffering children, uh, I, I think this is a model, you know, that he's a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching brother, graduate of uh, the Master's College in California, and a, a guy who just loves Jesus, sold out to Jesus, and I love it when people who are emphasizing Radical commitment to Christ and following the scriptures, and they're actually popular. Uh, a lot of the more popular people 
are popular sometimes precisely because they're departing from certain biblical arenas of belief. And they may offer other good and interesting things, but whenever there's a departure from Scripture, uh, you know, I think God ultimately is not honored, and, and I think uh, Francis Chan is very solidly biblically based. Good. And I appreciate it. Any other authors you guys would recommend that talk about radical, sacrificial living? Piper? Certainly. I mean, when Desiring God came out in 1985, I guess it was, that uh, his chapters uh, that related to uh, missions and lifestyle, uh, he, was, uh, he was quoting from Ralph Winter, uh, related to, let's not just talk in terms of simple lifestyle, which is kind of the idea that some people have, well, let's just simplify everything, which would mean in some cases, making less money and don't have a computer because you don't have to have a computer. But instead, he talked about strategic living. And I think the difference is that I can look in my life and I can say, I can use a computer for the glory of God and to do the work and use the gifts that he's called me to do. I, our family can use a microwave in order to save time, that can be used over in this area. And there is, uh, and, and when, uh, when John Piper said that, I thought, because I was working at the time on my book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, and I quoted him several times in it, and John still lives by that, still has that sense of uh, radical Christian living. And I think it's one that's uh, it, it's always timely and one that we need to look at and take seriously. Okay, so how much should Christians give? Uh, is the tithe principle, is that biblical in this New Testament era? And if not, if it's not 10%, which is what tithe means, then yeah. what percentage should Christians give these days? Well, that, that's a tough question. I, when you get into the whole area of tithing, it's, a, it's an amazing area to get into. But here, here's, here's what I think about tithing. In, in my book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, I mention... Tithing, I think I mentioned the treasure principle also, as what I call the training wheels of giving. That, that to me is all that it is. So to me, the standard of the tithe is not this lofty thing that somehow we should seek to reach, and then we reach it, we check off the box, and now the 90% belongs to us because we're giving the 10% to God. 100% belongs to God. We are not our own. We, we have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. We don't we don't even belong to ourselves. You know, we belong to God. It all belongs to God. Now the question is, to me, with tithing, I, I get many letters from people and have many conversations with people who say that, well, that's just legalism, and we have been freed from the bondage of those Old Testament standards, and we, as Christians in the body of Christ, therefore should no longer submit to such things as a tithe. Well, I don't look at it that way. I look at it as saying, well, if the tithe, and there were actually three tithes, uh, the, oh, we'll get into it, but the, the third tithe was every three years, the poor tithe, and so that would add up in an average year to 23%. Some of that would go to what we would call government type of thing. But let's take the 10% that went to the priests and the Levites that might be comparable to what we as Christians would give to a local church, take care of our leaders and Bible teachers and do the things of the local church. Well, 
let's say if you go by that 10%, to me, the question is this. Does God, under grace, lower his standards under the law? So whether the tithe is obligatory or not, just look at it this way. If God required the minimum giving of 10% of the poorest Israelite farmer, you know, of his crops and all of that, then you're living in the most affluent, talking to Americans now, in the most affluent culture in human history, and you're saying that you think it would be just fine for you under grace to give less than what God called upon much poorer people to give under the law. And they hadn't seen the atoning work of Christ, and they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I would not try to make that case to the Lord at the judgment seat. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. And so to me, when people are arguing that way, I I think we argue often to rationalize our own lack of generosity in giving. So the average Christian in America gives 2.5 to 2.7% of their income away. So that would mean that if we're all doing grace giving, apparently grace is about one-fourth as effective and powerful and transforming as the law. I just don't believe that's how it is and how it's supposed to be. The examples you see in the New Testament, the poor widow who gives everything, the Macedonian Christians in 2 Corinthians 8 who out of their great trial and great poverty give with overflowing joy and great generosity, not only according to their means, but beyond their means. And that that is celebrated. So I think uh, there is no answer percentage in terms of what we are to give. I think it's between you and God. But I would say this. Remember Malachi 3, which is always considered this tithing law passage. Remember what he says. You have been robbing me by withholding your tithes and your offerings. The offerings were free will. The ESV uh, translates it contributions. Those are free will offerings. So there were free will offerings in the Old Testament and God said you're robbing me by withholding some of the free will offerings. Well wait a minute, if it's free will, how can I be robbing you? Mm -hmm. So let's take tithe out, cross it out. You don't believe in the tithe? Okay fine. Are you robbing God by withholding free will offerings from him that his spirit is leading you to do if you would listen to his voice? Wayne, do you want to add to that? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm just right. sitting here trembling. That's all. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> well, a related question then is whether a Christian has any business at all purchasing something merely for entertainment, merely for frivolity, just for <laughs> how enjoyment. Do I, how, do I, how can I say, oh my goodness. Yes, I think so. <laughs> they do. Can you defend that more? Well, um, I want to say amen to everything that Randy has said, yeah. and um, I think it's right, and I think it's a challenge. It's just stronger than I would say it, mm. but, but I admire his courage for saying it. <laughs> um, so, um, but um, 1 Timothy 6.17 says, the rich in this world, I think I should read it. I've got it right here. I'll read it as you're turning to it, and then you comment on it. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Okay. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, let's see. Um, um, 
I think it was a week ago, I had to go to Chicago for a board meeting for Crossway Books. Margaret and I decided to stay two extra days and to stay downtown Chicago in a hotel. Why? Because it was fun. I, I think God blesses that. Um, and in fact, our granddaughter and her mother flew in from out of state, and so we had some time with them. And that was just using money for enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I agree, and I think the powerful thing about this is the context. Because in this context, he is talking to people who he's calling rich, and he is calling upon them to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. That immediately follows looking to God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Mm -hmm. In other words, we can take the abundance he's given us, and enjoy it. And I do things with my wife Nancy, just exactly what Wayne is talking about with Margaret. We're, we'll go places, we'll do things, we'll often do that very thing. Add on several days when I'm going to speak somewhere. We recently spoke in Southern California, and we had uh, three days in between speaking engagements. What did we do? Three day pass to Disneyland. We had a blast. It was just great. We had so much fun. And it enriches our marriage, it strengthens us, it renews us. Uh, God's got the, the, not only the, the sabbatical uh, seasons, uh, the Sabbath itself, but the sabbatical years. He's got the feasts. These feasts, I mean, how can you justify the feast on a pure economic basis? Well, couldn't that be used for the poor? Well, there is a time to just sit down and feast and enjoy yeah. uh, what so God has given So you can give generously and also enjoy... Right. What's the one that? doesn't negate the other. Isn't it a disconnect to think that uh, maybe giving to the poor is worship, and then maybe I should feel guilty about entertainment because it's about me, when uh, we're supposed to do everything yeah, to God's glory? Yes, and with thankfulness to God. So I'm whether thankful to God that we got to stay in that hotel. Yeah. Exactly. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 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 do all, to all the glory of God. God. Why did it not say, whether you pray or fast or whatever you do, do all mm. to the glory of God? Isn't it interesting that we choose something... That not only do we need physically, but the eating and drinking in that context usually is thought of as just sitting down and having a good meal and enjoying it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. What's that? What's that? 1031. Oh, 1 Corinthians 1031. Yeah. Now, you said earlier, uh, just a little bit ago in your session, um, you mentioned Matthew 6 and how we uh, seem to misunderstand what Jesus says there. Um, you said we should talk more about our giving habits to encourage mm. others, right? Yeah, and that's a, that's a controversial thing. It's something that I did not used to believe. But, but here's what I think. In Matthew 6, here's what Jesus is actually saying. Beware, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He's not saying... Don't do the righteous thing. Mm -hmm. He's saying, don't do the righteous thing in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you're seeking the reward of men by their praise and their approval, which is what so many of the Pharisees were doing, then that's wrong. You should seek your reward from God. You should do this just to honor the Lord. And then he says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. Like, look at me. You know, if you're giving to get your name on a brick, congratulations. You know, you get a brick. I mean, uh, but, uh, but you're not going to have reward from God. 
You know, if you're doing it to get your name publicized, to get a wing named after you at a college or whatever, if that's your motive for the giving to be seen by men, then God's not going to reward you for that. Okay, well, this is a, a great statement about God who sees in secret. And then it's got the passage about your left hand and your right hand. And I actually had a man in my church... Uh, say, I don't know how much I give in a year. And, uh, he sa- and he based it on this verse, because your left hand isn't supposed to know what your right hand is doing. Sa- I, I think the whole point in this passage is the, apparently Wayne does not agree with that man's interpretation. And neither did I. <laughs> and, 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 and basically, he was just justifying the fact that he didn't give, he, he, and, and he took the moral high ground of not oh. giving. Okay, now... Uh, here's what I believe. This passage now goes on to say, when you pray, and then it talks about, be sure that you're doing it in secret and you're not going out and praying in public so that others will see you, to be seen by them. Then when you fast, don't fast and then you know, make yourself look miserable and everybody <clears throat> looks at you, oh, I'll bet he's fasting. Don't do it to get praise and approval from other people. Now, the rabbis would often teach in... In, in, in threes like this. So you got prayer, uh, you got giving, you got prayer, you got fasting. But is that all that this applies to? No, it applies to everything, surely. Uh, the discipline of personal Bible study, would, it, would that apply? Do you do your Bible study so you can say, I study the Word of God one hour every morning. How much do you study the Word of God? No. I mean, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons to be praised by men, that's wrong. But now let me ask you a question. Having said all that, Is it appropriate in the body of Christ for someone, when the pastor is preaching on the subject of personal Bible study, is it appropriate for the pastor or a lay person in the church, one of the elders, to come up and say, well, I've been asked to share um, how I study. Um, I I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, I study for one hour, and I go to different passages, and then uh, I pray for... 15 minutes, uh, and I, I do it this way, and I do it this way. And then, all right, now, um, okay, so is this person then guilty of violating what Jesus said? Well, if their heart's wrong, they may be guilty of it. There is nothing, I mean, what if you stand up and give a testimony? Here's how we raised our kids, and here's what God taught us. And, and uh, you know, could you do that with pride? Or here's what we do in our marriage relationship. So anybody who works at speaks to the family life conferences and they tell stories about their own marriage and here's what we've learned and how, how we've grown. Is that all wrong to say how God has graciously worked in your life to help you grow and learn in an area, in a discipline? Well, it could be wrong if your heart's wrong, but it could be right uh, if your heart is right. And here's the bottom line. We need models of praying. We need models of fasting. If Bill Bright hadn't talked about his praying and fasting, if uh, R.G. Letourneau hadn't talked about his giving, if Hudson Taylor hadn't talked about his prayer life, if all of these things, if we did not have some record of those, they would not be any inspiration to us. So here's what I think we've done in the body of Christ. We've made it okay to talk about, yes, you know, we know this person's a prayer warrior. Go to them to pray. And we'll mention and, you know, go to, you know, Brother Jones. He's, he's, he's a prayer warrior. So, you know, go to him. And young people in our church know who to go to, hopefully, to study, learn to study the Bible, learn to pray, learn how to teach, learn how to do these things. But when I made the comment earlier, where are the giving warriors? What I mean by that is not 
people standing up saying, hey, I'm a big giver, look at me. You don't want to hear from those people. Get rid of them. I mean, you know, don't let them be on the platform if that's their attitude. But if you have people who are just quietly serving God, exercising another spiritual gift, the gift of giving, which is mentioned specifically in Romans 12, then wouldn't it be great if people would know, hey, you come to this man and he can teach you some things about living way below his income and faithfully using his spiritual gift, which isn't teaching, which isn't mercy, which isn't administration, but is giving to help some of you who may have the gift of giving and certainly all of us who need to learn to give more. That's what I'm talking about. But what I'm afraid is, is done is we've kind of X'd out giving selectively based on a misunderstanding of this passage so that there are no examples in the body of Christ and younger people, as I said, are not learning to give. We need more examples and more people they can go to to talk with. Any thoughts on that, Wayne? I'm thinking. <laughs> um, I hear what Randy's saying. I'm just, I don't feel comfortable telling people how much we give. Um, and Margaret and I started a number of years ago increasing. We'd given t- 10% for a whole marriage. And then, then we thought, well, let's give 11. Well, let's give 12. And we started increasing. But I just, so I'm willing to say that much. Sure. Um, and uh, but, that's gone okay, on for but a the number fact of years. though that you've said that much, yep. people are going, yeah, yeah. You 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 start with ten percent, and you go beyond that. Yeah, we you don't 11, have to tell us 12, how much. Yep. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't tell people how much total we give. Mm-hmm. I don't tell them what percentage we give. <clears throat> but I do tell them, for instance, that all the royalties of the books are given away. Yeah. And I have had more people come to me and say. You know, when you said that, a light turned on with me, and we are taking X percentage of our business, our family business, and we're saying, that belongs to mm-hmm. the Lord, and we're giving. If I hadn't heard R.G. Letourneau, as a young Christian, if I hadn't read about him, and he gave away 90% of what he made, and he invented those earth-moving machines and all of that, and I remember reading that as a young Christian, I was a teenager, I thought, that would be so great to be able mm-hmm. to do that for the Lord. But again, if you don't have points of reference, it's just really hard to do that. Let me add to that. God has been just wonderfully gracious to us. Uh, Year after year after year, it's been amazing. And to see his blessing. But I grew up with the benefit of a dad who taught me to tithe. Um, And my dad is 93 today. And now I'm keeping his checkbook because he's just too old. But he wants to be sure that I've given, he's still tithing. So I'm thankful, and we taught our kids to do that. Um, but then, then I think there's room to go beyond that, certainly, and the Lord blesses that. Mm. Good stuff. What about holding back giving in order to save so that it grows, so that you might give more later? So that if we save now, we'll have more, save retirement age, or even at my death. Here's to... the risk. You die and you haven't given it away. Yeah. Or the Lord returns. And, whoa, I accumulated $200,000, $300,000 in a foundation, a million dollars in a foundation, I was, and I was giving off, you know, I was giving the earnings from it, but I wasn't giving the principal, and then you've got it left, and it never got used for kingdom work. So that's the downside. On the other hand, people establish foundations, and they do give scholarships to students at seminary year after year after year, and I see them doing that. So 
I am, I'm not sure how to think about that. That's why Randy's here. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, there is a big danger, as Wayne's saying, I think in procrastinating giving. I, I understand, I, uh, because I've been involved in the generous giving movement and many seminars, I've had very um, lots of conversations with fairly wealthy believers about this. And sometimes the strategy does not work um, because uh, they lose money that they're waiting to give because they think it's going to grow and it doesn't grow. It shrinks. Mm -hmm. The business goes bad. We're going to sell off so many shares, but we're going to wait several years before we do because we have reason to believe it's going to go there. And then the family loses the business and this happens. The economy goes bad. But I think one of the big things is this. uh, Where Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I don't think he means where you plan to put your treasure 10 years from now, your heart will be today. But where you put your treasure, your heart will be. And so I think the most important giving is always the giving we're doing now. And so I would say if it's a judgment call and you're unsure, give now rather than giving later. And then some people who say, but I'd have more to give if I give later. Well, can't God multiply the gift you give now? even more than some investment over here could be multiplying that amount. In other words, does God entrust to each generation sufficient resources to care for the needs of the people around us? Or should we be saving up and saving up with foundations for future generations? And and you do have the situation of someone leaves a foundation and then the successors don't follow the wishes of the donor. <clears throat> and give to causes the donor wouldn't have wanted. And so I've, I, I know at least one very generous uh, individual who said his philosophy is he's going to give it all away in his lifetime. Right. So he knows where it's going. Absolutely. And I totally agree with that because, and, and I do know people who have been in that very situation where children and grandchildren who have not been properly brought along in this that don't really share the original philosophy then generation after generation. I know of uh, groups uh, that are now supporting Planned Parenthood with money that a sincere Bible-believing Christian had set aside. Yeah. And if everyone adopts this philosophy, then no one's giving to churches now. Or they're giving only the earnings, not the principal. Right. Is it so possible to focus on wise money management and maybe even sacrificial, sacrificial giving as part of that, um, that it becomes an idol, that it becomes uh, a distraction? You know, um, Margaret and I made a decision in our lives, um, and I can just tell what we've done personally. Um, a number of years ago, we were saving for retirement and savings, um, but it requires attention to look at it. <clears throat> and then there was a there are there are a number of firms like this, but there was a Christian um, investment management firm called Ron Blue and Company that has an office in the Phoenix area, and they they teach Christian stewardship principles. And um, if you put your savings with them to manage, they charge one percent per year of what they ma- so if they manage a hundred thousand dollars, they'll charge one thousand dollars per year. And they sat there thinking now, and then they're deciding what are they going to buy stocks, are they going to buy bonds, are they going to buy international companies, are they going to buy commodities, are they going to put it in money market, or what? They've got this philosophy of diversify in different areas. And I sat there thinking, now, these, this company who has really smart people who are studying all these investments all day long, 
could they possibly be 1% smarter than I am <laughs> on, on what to do with my money? And uh, so our decision was, yes, to trust them with that and um, think that they're going to be 1% smarter than I am. And you know what it did? Man, I don't even look at the stock market. I don't even watch what's going on. I don't, it doesn't matter because I know they've got a diverse strategy, and uh, I think that their strategy is wise. We meet with them once a year, and say, they say, here's what we've done, and this is what we're doing, and we're not doing real estate now because, you know, all that. So I say, that sounds good to me. <laughs> That's what we've done, and it frees me for the work that God's called me to do. So I don't know if that's helpful, yeah, Ryan, but it, that was just our personal decision. On the other hand, we know some Christians that God has given skill and interest in managing money, and they do it themselves, and that's their own heart. That's their decision, and I respect that decision, because for them, it's, it's kind of something enjoyable, and uh, it's not an idol. It's just uh, what they prefer to do, and so I'm... I think those are right decisions, too. Any thoughts, Randy? No, nothing to add. It's okay. good. I agree. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's talk some business things. Uh, you at times have um, referenced passages that refer in the New Testament to slaves and masters. How, how should we understand those terms? Is the Bible implicitly endorsing slavery, or should we just understand that it's workers and bosses? Um, the Bible throughout... Uh, never condones involuntary servitude or capturing someone to work who is against his will, which was American slavery. And uh, in the book of Exodus, he who steals a man and sells him shall be put to death. So, and uh, uh, the New Testament in First Timothy, um, in First Timothy one, lists a number of sins. Uh, the law is laid down for the Lawless and disobedient, ungodly, sinners, First <clears throat> Timothy 1.9, unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. Now, we translated the King, I'm on the ESV translation committee, and the Greek word there means people who capture others to make them slaves or who involved, are involved in the slave trade. And so we, we, we used an unusual word, enslavers, thinking that it might not be a common word, but people know what it means when they hear it. The, um, if the King James Version had translated that, enslavers, it would have changed history. Wow. Hmm. But they translated man-stealers, and people thought it had to do with kidnapping or something like that, but didn't relate it to slavery. So just the translation of one word. So the, the Bible is consistently opposed to involuntary uh, capturing people to be in slavery and to the abuse of slaves. Now, in the, um, in the first century world, there was, um, there was a, an employment function called a doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, which is translated servant or slave or bondservant in the New Testament. It was not like American slavery in that uh, people who had high degrees of responsibility were uh, this... I would call it a bondservant, a doulos. Um, like in the parable of the talents, one talent, two talents, and five talents are entrusted to these servants, that's doulos. Well, uh, modern equivalent, that's um, the five talents is about $2 million. So the master says, here's $2 million to this servant, and then goes off to a far country. And, 
and uh, in the first century, this doulos, they were, they were teachers, they were foremen, they were shop managers, they were physicians. Uh, they had oftentimes high degree of responsibility. Many people would voluntarily enter into that because on average, by age 30, the Oxford Classical Dictionary says they could expect to buy their freedom. So it was a way to gain regular employment. They were a much higher social category than the day laborers who went into the market each day hoping to find work, but didn't have regular employment. And there was a separate system of Roman law that protected these people against um, certain defrauding and abuse, and they were paid and they had their own possessions. So the modern equivalent, but the, the thing about it was, once you were a doulos, you couldn't quit. You couldn't change employers. So... Um, the modern equivalent, closest equivalent that I can think in today's society is military service, where you sign up for a certain length of time and then you can't get out. You're paid. There will be a time when you get out. There's a certain set of laws. There's a uniform code of military justice that you're subject to. There's military tribunals. So it's a separate judicial system, but you're protected. Now, it was something like that. It was the most common employment situation in the ancient world. So, no, the Bible doesn't condone slavery, as we understand slavery today. Second, yes, it is the closest parallel to employer-employee relationships today. So the master-servant verses do apply directly to us. Good. That's helpful. Well, how is one to behave in an economic structure where bribes are not only commonplace, but they're needed for businesses to succeed? Obviously, a place outside the U.S. Yeah. Um, yeah I want to distinguish there, Ryan, between paying somebody to do wrong, which is always wrong, and paying someone to do what he ought to do anyway, like stamp your license or something like that. Um, and I want to separate those because in the New Testament or the Bible, giving a bribe to a judge or an official is to persuade the person to make a wrong judgment. A bribe is paying someone to do wrong. Um, and I think we should never do that. And companies doing business in foreign countries have to say, if I have to do that, then I'm not going to do business there. But paying someone because he's just expecting a tip before he does the service, <laughs> tip, um, if it's just paying the person to do what he ought to do, I have less problem with that. Hmm. We give tips afterward. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't think calling them all bribes and putting them all in the same category is the most helpful. It doesn't, doesn't allow precision of thinking. Hmm. Does that help? Yeah. I don't know who asked good. the question. If, if you ask a question, I'm not answering you on follow-up. Just ask Randy. Uh, ask Brian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, another question, I think somewhat related, is um, are we responsible for the potential use of what we create? You talked about uh, harvesting resources and <clears throat> producing goods. Um, I don't think so. So when we put them in people's hands... Yeah, I, I could, in very good conscience, work in a... Um, firearms manufacturing company because I think firearms are usually used for hunting or for protection, self-defense. Those are morally good purposes. The fact that a criminal is going to use them I don't think is my responsibility. It's the government's responsibility, if that's one example. Yeah. Um, or I could work in a paper mill that produces paper for newspapers, but pornographers I, you know, might buy it down the road. In the market. I, I can't be responsible for secondary uses of products that I produce. I mean, people could take my systematic theology and hit each other over the head with it. <laughs> it could be dangerous. <laughs> Boy, there's a word picture for it. <laughs> I think we've done that around here. Yeah, times, right. Actually. Um, I'm not responsible. <laughs> 
And I, I would say this, that there might be a situation, let's say predominantly in the South where many Christians historically have been involved in the tobacco industry, uh, mm-hmm. where there might be a true moral struggle when they look statistically at the numbers of people yep. who are dying, the disease, yep. the health costs, the, all of that, uh, who might have to come to terms with, should I really be part of this yeah. or not? Now that's a good example. I, I don't think I could, in good conscience, work for a tobacco company mm-hmm. because I think that the harm is much greater than... And I know there are personal liberty issues and freedom issues and freedom of choice, and, um, but I, I just I, I couldn't personally do that or own stock in a tobacco company. Mm-hmm. Although, honestly, Randy, there's a secondary cause there. I might differ. If, if I own a mutual fund that owns 1,000 stocks, and like, a, like a, an index fund owns 4,000 stocks and one of them is a tobacco company, who cares? I'm, I mean, I, that doesn't bother me. It might bother you. <laughs> yeah, well, it would bother me if I knew it and I could do something about it yeah. and had an alternative. Yeah. Right. Another question is, uh, what economic systems are more biblical than others? Are there any that are completely biblical? Or are there any that are completely unbiblical? I think communism is completely unbiblical <laughs> because it abolishes private property and therefore reduces human freedom to serve God with our resources. And so it's a dehumanizing system of government. And I've been in communist uh, Russia, and I've been in communist China, and um, uh, communism is less intense now in China than it was, but it's it's evolving. But uh, I think those are both... Communism is an evil system. Um, and it's destructive. And uh, I think that um, there are good arguments for saying that, number one, there should be ownership of private property allowed in a society, that property belongs fundamentally to individuals, not to government, and not to society. Therefore, I'm not a communist, and I'm not a socialist. And number two, um, I think there should be Uh, that the Bible values not slavery or bondage, but human freedom, freedom to make choices and to follow God or disobey him as people choose. Once you have private ownership of property and you have a value on human freedom, you basically have a free market economy. Mm -hmm. Now, the government has to restrain criminal activity, so there's some restraint on that free market economy. But basically, I think that is both consistent with biblical principles for how God made human beings to function and it is uh, remarkably, wonderfully, the most productive kind of economy. Mm-hmm. That's so? just what I was going to say. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> no, that's great. I agree. Okay. Randy, let me ask you a question about uh, personal investments and uh, planning for the future, that sort of thing. Let, let me ask you, if you were to counsel, and I'm sure you do this from time to time, to, to counsel a young couple um, in their money management, their planning, their savings, you know, emergency funds? Is there uh, something you would describe or even just a book you would say, just read this book, do what he says? Hmm. What, what do you say to a young couple? Feel free to mention your own book. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, um, I, I would in, encourage uh, people to go uh, to uh, Crown Ministries um, is, is a group I really believe in. Um, they do a lot of stuff in local churches. Uh, the uh, Dave Ramsey stuff, in particular, getting out of debt, and you don't have to agree with everything Dave maintains, and I would also encourage you to think in terms of why are you getting out of debt. 
I think one of the great reasons should be to be more free to respond to the opportunities around you to give to your church, to give to, you know, you can get out of debt and still be a great materialist. You know, you're just a wiser materialist than you used to be now that you're out of debt. But you don't want to be a materialist. So there's, there's more to it than just debt. But Crown Ministries uh, kind of goes through the whole gamut of things. And certainly uh, books by Howard Dayton, books by uh, Ron Blue, who we've mentioned. Ron's a good friend. Um, these, these are books that have, you know, good insights. I, I guess I would really encourage couples to... Um, challenge their worldview. Uh, I mean, to make sure that they're thinking as Christians that this is God's world, that God owns it all, that we are God's money managers. He's put our name on the account um, and he is entrusted to us a lot. And let's be careful and thoughtful. And part of careful and thoughtful is setting aside some money for entertainment. Part of it is personal enrichment, all of that. But one thing I really encourage young couples to do is don't look around you and see the decisions everybody else yeah. is making. Okay. Do not look around you and see that, you know what, the other couples your age that have been married for the same number of years, they all own homes and they all own nice homes. Hmm. Um, and so for you, you should know, you know, then they start thinking, well, we shouldn't rent because rent is, renting is throwing money down the drain. Not necessarily. You're getting a place to live in. You know, for that. That's not throwing money down a drain. And in some economies with some level of incomes, you're really not ready to buy. Or if you do buy, you better buy really low end. And most people don't really want to do that for all the repairs and everything else that's going to be done. But I think we get into this trap and then people say, okay, well, we could afford a house of this level. Then they go to their realtor and then pretty soon they're up the next level, the next mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. They buy way over their heads. And one of the most common things that happens with young couples, and I'll tell you one specific story in this regard. There was a couple in our church years ago, actually, when I was still a pastor, who came to me because they had gone way over their heads, as many people have, and they bought a house and the Payments were manageable based on two incomes, hers and his. She then gets pregnant. She cannot afford to no longer work for them to continue their house payments. And literally, they were this close to getting an abortion. They actually had the appointment to get an abortion. Now, think about this, how Satan works. Here's a young couple, and they their first thoughts are, oh, we're going to buy this home. This will be a great home to raise our children in. Now God gives us a child and we are this close to killing that child so we can afford to continue to pay for this home. That's from the pit of hell. And Satan gets and grabs people and twists and distorts the thinking. And so much of it goes back to, to the difference between needs and wants. Contentment. Being content. And don't just have to escalate like the people around you are doing. And the people who have made modest and careful and wise decisions now are ones who are so grateful in this economy. A lot of people made decisions based on, well, they could do it then. But you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you will be making as much money a year from now as you are now. And so when you make a long-term commitment to pay this much per month, we did that. In our home, I'm not sorry we did, but it was very manageable and well within what we could do with one income.
Any thoughts on that, Wayne? Two different times in our marriage, we bought houses bigger than we could afford mm. and had to sell them. Mm. And there was great strain in our marriage. Mark and I, could talk, we've talked about it publicly before. Mm. Um, and um, both times out of obedience to the Lord, we had to sell those houses. Mm. And um, we made the mistakes. Mm. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, what about marketing? Wayne, this is a question for you. Is, is marketing lying? If, Sometimes. <laughs> if a company is saying, here's what's good about our product and not highlighting what is a shortcoming in their product, is that goes is back that to dishonest? one of those principles, and that is don't lie. Tell the truth. There's nothing wrong with telling the good parts of your product and advertising it. Um, I don't think there's anything in itself wrong with marketing or advertising. Um, I'm hoping that Zondervan will advertise this new book that I'm putting out. Um, and uh, it's making known to consumers <clears throat> that the book is available and what its features are. So I don't think in in I don't think there's anything wrong with it in itself. Now, people say, well, you know, way too much money is spent on advertising in television today and things like that. Well, that is simply the viewing habits of the American public that are paying for it by watching. And so, if you don't like it then change the viewing habits of the American public. Yeah. That's, they're voting by their eyes and by their viewing time. So, that's my, my dad, I'm talking about my dad again. He just gets so mad at the salaries paid, by, paid to professional baseball and football players. <laughs> they shouldn't earn that many millions of dollars. That's not worth it. And I said, Dad, do you watch them? Well, yeah. Well, you're paying for it by watching <laughs> the television show because you're paying for the advertising. It goes into the ratings. So, can't complain. That's the will of the American people. Maybe I should say that pastor of, is this Desert Springs Church? Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's where you are, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Busy week, huh? <laughs> um, are we in New Mexico? Or is this... <laughs> Maybe I think that the pastor of Desert Springs Church should earn more money and some professional athlete should earn less, but that isn't how the American society has voted with its dollars. Yeah. So the, the consumers vote, and the, the, the character of our society determines people's salary. I would say there are some issues in the Christian community that, that relate somewhat to marketing and, and kind of false marketing sorts of issues. In Christian publishing, I've, uh, I've talked to a number of publishers. One time spoke to a group of uh, representatives from Christian publishers uh, about the problem of ghostwriting. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that there are many books out there that say they are written by a person and they were not written by that person. Wow. They were written by somebody else whose name does not appear. Wow. And I think that's an ethical, moral issue, and the reason is, as I talk to the publisher, just tell me why you were doing that, and I know the answer, it's because it will sell more copies if people mm. believe this celebrity wrote it. Well, you can say that it's, it's by this celebrity with this other person who helped them write it, yep. fine, that's fine, because they're telling their stories to this person who's writing them down, but when you leave out the real writer of it, and it's actually happened a number of times with uh, well-known pastors, where there's someone else who's a ghostwriter, and they're writing it, and that person d gets no credit. Um, I've never done ghostwriting myself. Um, you know, I don't believe in it, but I have friends who have done it, and they make an income by it, and they say, "Well, that's the way it works," and everything. But I just have made major yeah. issues with it. I think it's false advertising. And by the way, here's something that you would not normally think of. This I got a letter a while back from um, 
uh, head of a, a consortium of Christian liberal arts colleges about this, but I wrote an article some years ago in our newsletter. It's on our website that's got quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of attention because I talked about the problem of false advertising by Christian liberal arts colleges, and that is, what I'm talking about is their doctrinal statements. Oh, Randy. And yeah. you read those doc. Good for you. You read that those. That needs to be done. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I Boy, I got, finally got somebody that liked the fact oh, that I did that. Oh, good. But, um, Where but, can I sign on? <laughs> but the point is, I said, okay, so here's what you say. Believe in inspiration, inerrancy of scripture, and so on, yeah. virgin birth of Christ, and all that. I said, so why don't you change this to say, 63% of our faculty yep. believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures, and by the Bi- which and, they and mean... None, and none of the Bible faculty. Right. And the following percentage believe in the virgin birth of Christ. The following believe in the literal resurrection. The following believe in, you know, Jesus being the only way of salvation. Whatever. Because what they're doing is they have old doctrinal statements that many of the faculty members don't believe, do not teach, teach contrary to... Yep. And why do they keep those doctrinal statements in there? And I think the bottom line, which I was proposing in this article, is because the parents of the kids who are paying the money, usually, for them to go there, would not send their kids there if they knew what the college really believes and really teaches. That is false advertising. You know what would solve that? A lawsuit. (laughs) I sent my child here saying, you said you believe this. All right, I don't get it. Yeah. Lawyers do have some good purpose. Can Christians sue Christians? Sometimes. Sometimes. Can you elaborate? I'm sure everyone else would want you to elaborate a little bit. First Corinthians seven, Paul says yeah. that the Corinthian church shouldn't six. be six. six. So, sorry, six. Um, yeah, there's a long note at First Corinthians six in the ESV Study Bible, okay. which I had a large hand in writing. Uh, <laughs> I mean that note. Yeah. Um, Not the actual <laughs> word of God itself, but well, the I, note. I, I, I was on the translation. <laughs> All right. Um, um, and uh, the material that's most helpful on that is from Peacemaker Ministries, hmm. by Ken San- led by Ken Sandy, S-A-N-D-E. And um, the context in 1 Corinthians is if you have a dispute with a brother, then... Don't go to the law law court outside the church. Address it within the church. And can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to decide uh, among members of the of the of the brotherhood or of the church? So you go and ask for the church to arbitrate the dispute between you. But um, if um, if um, person A has a business deal with person B. Person A is in the Baptist church and person B is in the Presbyterian church. And um, I'll make the Baptist the bad guy here. Because <laughs> so, that's my background. Um, just so not to be prejudiced. And, and, the, and the Baptist guy cheats the Presbyterian guy. And the Presbyterian guy goes to the Baptist church and says, first he goes privately and then he takes one or two others. And then he goes to the church leaders and says, this guy defrauded me, he broke our contract, will you please discipline him? And they say no. Then I don't think Paul leaves the Christian without any recourse. I think the person, the Christian, uh, I think the recourse that Paul said was, go to the church and let the church discipline take care of it. But um, 
if he tries and that doesn't function or the, or the guy won't be subject to it, then I think the, the civil law courts are there for us to enforce justice and uh, to enforce the, uh, uh, the upholding of contracts. So I think, I think Presbyterian guy has a right to take Baptist guy to court. I think the, probably the way in which I would struggle with that would be, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, why not rather be wrong? I think he could decide to forego and just yeah. say, okay, I took a loss, and for the sake of the testimony of the gospel, I'm just going to take a loss. But you know what? That just may, inclu- that just may encourage Baptist guy to go on defrauding person after person after person and bringing reproach on the gospel again and again and again, rather than letting the force of the law, which is supposed to enforce justice, come to bear to stop the evil doing. Baptist guy, he's bad, isn't he? Baptist guy, poor Baptist guy. <laughs> Too bad. Off to jail you go. <laughs> Randy, can you talk about uh, heavenly treasures? What's the nature of these heavenly treasures or these, uh, these rewards? In and do heaven? I get a convertible in heaven? <laughs> Say yes. Was that Margaret laughing? No. No, I was okay. Well, it might have been. It might have been. But, um, oh, are you back there, Margaret? <laughs> I thought she was going to take a nap. I, boy, I, have you been here the whole time? <laughs> Did you hear right. that part where he said, no. no. <laughs> that he was going to sell the house and give it away to the kingdom of God? No. <laughs> no. Um, uh, Not true. But the, um, the, the treasures in heaven, we're... You know, it's not spelled out exactly what they are, but I think the most common one is that every time you see a reference to crowns, and there's numbers of references to crowns, and every time you see a reference to reigning with Christ, and you see the references to you've been faithful a little, I'll put you over a lot, put you over five cities, put you over ten cities. This is the most common theme about rewards in heaven, and this could be what mainly treasures in heaven are really talking about. And that is the crown is the representative of, the, uh, speaks of the one who rules. The crown speaks of the position. It's not that, you know, the, ki- the, the king or the prince looks at his crown and goes, boy, that's really my reward. It's representative of his position of responsibility in his father's kingdom. That's good, Randy. Yeah. I like that. Thanks. Yeah. Good. Amen. I'm sitting here and Wayne Grudem is approving of my stuff. <laughs> it's good stuff. So responsibility is what you say. Yeah, so I would say it's responsibility in God's kingdom. Uh, and, and I think uh, one of the things, I talk about this in my heaven book, is that there are a lot of people who say then, well, gee, I'm not looking forward to that then. Because I don't want more responsibility. Mm. I want less responsibility. And that's where we have kind of, I think, a little twisted view through our idea of what constitutes retirement that we see as kind of the ultimate, like toward the end of life. And and a lot of wonderful things can be done in retirement, and golfing and walking on beaches can be among them. But if that's what it's all about, then you have to ask yourself the question, can there also be joy in productivity and be able to volunteer and do a lot of things? But then in God's kingdom... What we do is we associate power right now with all of the corruption that we've seen with it. And and people say, well, I don't want to rule over people. I don't want to have people rule over me. Well, the only reason you're saying that is because 
you live in a world of sin. God is the ultimate ruler, and there's no sin in him. We will, you know, we're righteous in Christ, and we will reign forever, and we will shine as the stars of heaven, Daniel said, and, and, and Jesus quoted him as well. And it will be a privilege to serve under people in God's kingdom that are faithful. I've met some people who I would be so honored to serve under them in the kingdom. And, and, and those of you who have read the Heaven Book know that I, I talk about this one guy is a, a black man, a bellman in an Atlanta hotel who came up to me and, and I gave him one of my booklets and he said, you know, I'm a Christian. And he says, I'm, I'm praying for your Christian group. It was a writer's conference that weekend. I've been praying for you and he was just all going around serving. And then at one point I, I got him a little special gift. It was a cross with some things on it. And I came up and I gave it to this guy. I'll never forget it. And he looked at me and he said, you shouldn't give this to me. I'm only a bellman. And, and it just hit me in that moment. I thought, I maybe am going to serve under him in the kingdom of God. Devout Christian man yeah. serving, bringing books in, bringing coffee into us, bringing every, just serving us. And in the kingdom, people like that are going to be great. And uh, people like me are going to consider it an honor to serve under them. So when you think of God entrusting a position of service to you where you may rule, it's not abusive. It's doing things together in structure, in community, to the glory of God for eternity. That is going to be glorious. And I, I believe Jonathan Edwards' view is that the, the rewards are more of God's glory, more experience of communion and intimacy with him. Do you agree with that? Well, I do agree with that. I, I would not see those as contrary to each other. But certainly, uh, the, uh, Edwards used this example. Spurgeon picked it up later. But the idea of receptacles, that um, uh, all of us will be full in heaven, but we are now in our faithful service to Christ, enlarging the size of our receptacles, and the fullness of that has to do with our enjoyment of the person of God. And some of us will be able to enjoy him more for all eternity because we have served him well here. That could very well be, and that's a beautiful uh, thought. That I guess is particularly beautiful if you've got a big one. And not quite as beautiful, but more maybe challenging if you have a smaller one. I'm not sure. That's probably speculative. But. You know, there's something else, Randy. I think that God will tailor our rewards to suit who we are. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that um, I, I was department chairman for a while. I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the administrative responsibility. Uh, once or twice I've been asked, would I like to be president of an institution or be considered for it? No. Done, I, I would not like to be. I, I want to do what God has made me to do, yes. a lot of which is sitting in my study and thinking about stuff and then writing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, it is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so... Um, I expect that, um, that God will tailor my reward to who I am. And, and Margaret, Margaret has just, God has just given her great fulfillment and blessing in ministering to groups of pastors' wives, yes. especially younger pastors' wives of various churches throughout the area. And they meet in a, in a group of 12 or 15 in our home, one group on Wednesday nights, one group on Thursday nights once a month, and I just go hide in the other end of the house. Um, <laughs> But, but God has made Margaret for that, and I can see such joy and fulfillment. And, and I can see Margaret doing more of that in right. heaven and being given more, more responsibility will be responsibility 
with the kind of thing that God has made her to do and to give, get joy from and fulfillment from. So the reward will be more of what gives you life. Great example. My wife, Nancy, uh, loves animals, dogs in particular. Dog lovers, raise your hand. There we go. We got some anyway. And she, um, she says, you know what I want to do in the new earth is take care of God's animals. You know? And I said, you know what? I could really see you doing that. You're just wired to do that. And could that be a real thing God entrusts to his people? Well, what was one of the first things God gave humanity to do? Take care of the animals. So why not? Old earth, new earth. Why not? That's good. And by the way, in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis alludes to a woman whose job it is, it's not yet the resurrected state, but... It is to care for animals. Mm-hmm. Not that that makes it right, because you know, so said it. But. Yeah, your book on heaven changed my mind on whether some of our pets will be in heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> positively or negatively? Yeah, positively. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I mean, you persuaded me that, that, that that's very likely. Yeah. I didn't think. Well, hopefully that's an encouragement to some of you to, to pick yeah. it up and to read. Now, we had yeah, other, I've got two chapters we, on that. We had, we had other friends who said about their dog, well, some dogs may go to heaven, but this one we're sure not will not. Not this one. <laughs> Might be dogs in Not too. this one. Next question. Let's do a whole bunch of real quick questions here. Yeah, we only have one more. So we, we've got time for one more, and uh, this is a personal one. Um, maybe each of you could take just a couple of minutes to describe a day in the life of. And as I was asking Wayne this um, just a little bit ago, I, I said, uh, tell us about your typical day, I think. And you thought I said typical date. And, and so I said, all right, a day that includes a date. So would each of you just kind of, from the, maybe yeah. some mundane things, but, you know, it, yeah. let's suppose this ends with a date with your wife. How does this go? Yeah. Well, I'll start there. Um, Margaret and I, um, just in, we've found more and more now that, a lot of the joy we have is doing ordinary things of life together and just um, going to the grocery store together. It just sounds kind of funny, but it's just the chance to be together and to walk around, uh, around the grocery store and unload the groceries together. And just we're, we're, we're kind of playing being a married couple. <laughs> we're being a married couple for 40 years now, and it's just fun. And uh, just having breakfast together. And Margaret reads the Arizona Republic. I read Wall Street Journal editorials. And um, it's just a routine of life. And so, and we, we enjoy, we've started watching, we watched through this um, NCIS series, Naval Criminal Investigative Service, which is, you know, we've rented that and, and watched them. And that's fun for us to do at night, watch a movie. And, and we enjoy, um, once a month we get together with friends and play cards to other faculty families. And uh, we play... Uh, is alcohol of, present? No. <laughs> oh, it isn't. <laughs> I thought I was nailing you. No. <laughs> I don't have a moral objection. No, to it, it's just that it just doesn't it have to be present. It isn't there. Yeah. No. Um, man, you're dangerous. <laughs> what other questions do you have for me? Um, uh, but we, you know, we have a modified version of Hearts, and uh, with two decks, and it's fun. So, um, or we'll go, out, we'll go out to a restaurant with friends. Um, those kind of things. That's a date for us. Um, typical day, I get up in the morning. Um, usually I need eight hours of sleep, sometimes seven. But if I go very long with just like six and six, then I get really tired and I, I can't concentrate and can't, it's not productive. So, get up in the morning. Um, 
uh, Margaret and I have breakfast together, and then I'll spend some time, 30 to 45 minutes, it's probably 45 minutes, yeah, yeah, it probably ends up being 45 minutes. I'll read a chapter in the Old Testament, read a chapter in the New Testament, I have a notebook of things that I pray for, spend some time in prayer, and, um, and then part of that time is just waiting on the Lord, just quietly waiting in the Lord's presence, not just praying about next thing or reading the next verse, but just being still. And those are very special times when God just works in my heart, brings things to mind. I also pray, I have a little to-do list, and I pray over that in the morning, ask for God's guidance and insight into it. Pray for Margaret, pray for our children, pray for family members, friends, church things, other things. And then, um, uh, either in the morning or late afternoon, and sometimes I skip, I'll either go to the gym and lift weights, or I'll ride an exercise bike, half hour. Or I'll run, but I can't run on after breakfast, so then that'll be late afternoon or I'll be before breakfast. It's kind of jumbled. Uh, then I just work at my desk. Um, and uh, Margaret will bring lunch to me, keep on working, um, and then evening we'll have supper together. Some evenings I'll work, sometimes we do stuff together in the evening. If I've got a long project, I'll work late into the evening and then into the next day, but usually that's about the day. And teaching gets squeezed in there some? Uh, yeah, if I teach, then I go and teach classes. <clears throat> but I work at home, so I just go in to teach. It's a 30-minute drive, so I don't, I'm not at the seminary too much. Okay. Great. Hmm. Uh, Nancy and I love to do things together. I kind of consider my time with Nancy uh, my reward for hard work, you know. So sometimes I'll think, uh, uh, okay, if I get this done, get this done, get in for dinner, and Nancy and I spend the evening together. Sometimes we'll go out to eat. Sometimes we'll go out places. Um, uh, we have certain things that uh, we enjoy. Uh, we've recently been watching, I don't know how many of you have seen that series, British series, uh, Foyle's War. Uh, anybody seen Foyle's War? Excellent. We're in it. The Horatio Hornblower series. Anybody seen that? Yeah, we got some more hands there. Uh, we like things that are his, historical, that you learn from, but also enjoy the character development story type things, and then we have the little uh, series, the, the program. We don't have cable, so we don't, we don't see it as it comes on, but we have a friend, we borrow his uh, DVDs, uh, but the Monk series, Monk? Yeah, a lot of you know Monk. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, you know, we, we enjoy that. So we, we enjoy good movies, we enjoy uh, talking together. Uh, she'll talk to me about what she's uh, reading, I'll talk to her about what I'm reading, uh, she writes uh, women's Bible studies for our church, and uh, she'll walk me through, we'll talk about some of the things she's studying, and I'll bounce off things that I'm working on writing for my book, For as far as my own work goes, uh, I, uh, usually, Nancy and I are together until she goes to bed, usually uh, quite early, 9.30, 10 o'clock, uh, and sometimes I'll, we'll read next to each other, usually reading something different until... She goes to sleep, then I go out, and I usually uh, am at work reading or working, writing, whatever, until maybe 2 o'clock in the morning. So I sleep a bit uh, later than she does. I try to get at least seven hours uh, sleep. So I'm, I might get up at 9. Some days it's 8, and uh, every once in a while if I go to bed at 3, I'll probably sleep until 10. But I determine my own schedule, so usually I'm able to do that unless I have a morning commitment. But then when I get to work, um, I'm just, I tried to do my best to uh, set aside uh, email uh, because if once I get into email, I never get out of it. So if I set, only by setting it aside can I focus on the work that I need to do with writing 
and just set myself to it. Then in the afternoon, uh, sometimes 2 o'clock in the afternoon, then I'll open up email when my mind is kind of at its worst compared to mm-hmm. when it was when I first started. Mm-hmm. Because I can answer email at my worst instead of do my research and writing at mm-hmm. my worst. Um, and so that's, so if you've gotten emails from me, you can understand now why they it didn't make much sense. So, um, but, uh, and sometimes I'll do those also very late at night once again after I've done some reading and other study. So every day is a little bit different because I'll have appointments and meetings and that sort of thing. But I really try to guard my life as a writer. I believe that it's a calling. Uh, and every time I allow myself to do too many other things, uh, you know, it gets in the way. As far as exercise goes, I coach high school tennis. Um, so I play tennis three, four times a week uh, with high school guys. And I coach singles. So that, that keeps me active. But when it's not during the season, it, it's actually during the season right now, um, I, I bike when the weather's good. And then I do indoor bike in my office, uh, as, as Wayne was talking about. And, and that's how I keep active. To me, the activity is, is just extremely important. Um, I'm an insulin-dependent diabetic, and I, uh, and I think it's important for everybody anyway. But I think for me, just to stay on track physically, I really have got to have that exercise. When you do heavy mind work, um, the body work, wow, you just, I think you appreciate it all the more. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you for uh, your openness and for your wisdom.